So guys, welcome to episode four of Teacher's Philosophy, a bi-weekly podcast where you can get basically your resources and anything you can learn about education and then you have come in resources books that you may apply to your school so i have and i'm so honored i have a wonderful guest today david bouchard so i think i need like a, a good like hour to introduce you here david <laughs> it's like your cv is so impressive so david is an acclaimed author of children's books is also a champion of literacy this former teacher and school principal has written more than 70 books in english that's right 70 in french and English in several indigenous languages and combined with in poetry, prose and visual arts, explore topics such as the environment, history and traditions and cultures of Canadian indigenous communities. A storyteller through sought out public speaker, David has traveled across the country to promote the importance and the joy of reading and writing. His presentations to students, parents and educators, he addresses his own struggles with dyslexia. A proud of his Métis heritage and a former president of the Métis Nations and Greater Victoria and continues to serve as a community leader. So, David, welcome to Teacher's Philosophy. You're so welcome to have me. I'm thrilled to be here with you, Grace. Thanks. So, like I said, you have a very impressive CV. And I just, first off, I know it happened a while ago, but I never got to say congratulations on the Governor General's Award. That is very impressive. That is very cool. And along, like, you also have a school named after you here in Ontario, in Oshawa. Super cool. That is so cool. I know. That is Super what cool. a great legacy to have that. So, yeah, it's, I think it simply speaks to the age, to my age. The older you are, the more of these things happen. That's period. amazing. It that is, is yeah. absolutely amazing. So I first came across and I met you, this is a few years ago, in Toronto at Reading for the Love of It. We had that symposium, which mm-hmm. you hosted for, at the Japanese Culture Center. Mm-hmm. The Toronto Japanese Culture Center. And that's when I first met you. And I was impressed because you have a great presence in terms of being a teacher but also as like it's true like a storyteller and this poet Mm. and also you don't have any a musician as you guys just heard at the beginning here the recording david started playing so that's absolutely amazing where did you learn how to play the flute flute? well (laughs) let me start with the obvious you heard me say earlier i'm dyslexic Mm-hmm. And when you're dyslexic, there are many challenges you face, of course, reading, mathematics, sequencing of all sorts, but you also have other strengths. And I tried to take piano. Mom had me in piano for six years. And after six years, I had to take theory and I had to look at my late mother and say, Mom, I can't read a note. And she said, well, how are you playing? And I said, well, I'm listening to what Mademoiselle M1 is playing and I'm trying to repeat that. And Mom, can I stop this nonsense? And she let me quit. And to that day, that was 50 some years ago, I've never had a piano in my house again because it was just so it was just such uh, it was so stressful to think I can't do this and what a pressure to put on a child who can't read music mm. so I kind of stayed away from that and I picked up a guitar and I could strum a little bit and I love singing and then the first time I heard the native flute I thought oh that works because I believe in I, be- <laughs> I believe in genetic direction I believe that your grandmothers live within you and if you are able to ever open your heart and your soul to their direction you'll live a lot better life than if you try to push things so we as indigenous people say hop in the river and swim with the tide don't turn and swim up river for material things or for ego or go with that river and so i heard that and i believe in genetic memories the first time i heard it, it just screamed of something of days gone by and so i approached the elder and i said are they easy to play and he said absolutely all you have to do is put your finger in this one hole and blow and i did it And subsequently, Grace, I started to collect them and I use them in my books. In a lot of my books, you can download them, you can hear music. And it's just another element that I use to invite listeners, to invite readers into. Mm -hmm. I've always said books have to be inclusive and anything I can do to include them, I do. So, you know, the the flute is super, super cool. And if any of your listeners are interested, uh, this particular flute and a large number of my flutes are created by an artist outside of Toronto, just up by uh, Uxbridge called Makwa. Steve oh, Rensink, cool. and they're not expensive, two, two and a quarter, two fifty, and it comes with an instruction booklet, and they're just crazy. When I work with kids, kindergartens, I've got them, mm-hmm. grade twelves, 
I've got them. They're just that captivating because it speaks to something deep within us. And regardless of what culture you come from, the flute is the third oldest instrument in the world. So it reawakens those powers within. Mm-hmm. So if anybody's interested, reach out to me. Just email me anytime. You find me on the internet and I'll put you in touch with Steve. Sounds good. I will definitely put this in the show notes. And it's funny you say that because I remember at the symposium, you had your collection of flutes there. And yeah. you were so kind where you're like come look at them and you were inviting for us to look at them i was just like i was just on i remember at a table with a couple of my colleagues who i work with and we're just like this is so cool like this is like best thing like we should able to do this at school and it's true like music does encapsulate so much it triggers i guess memories and just feelings of emotions and especially if you can clue that into a story I think oh, it engages students Isn't even that? More. I mean, the strongest sense is that sense of smell for reawakening those memories. Grace mm-hmm. said, if I could, I mean, in my books, I use music, I use poetry, I use imagery, always, always. I'm using various languages. I use anything I can. If I could have a scratch and sniff, so you could smell <laughs> sweet grass. I swear to God, I would. I'm sure somebody's tried that before. I just haven't got there yet. But you're right. Just come on, come on in. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? That's what reading is all about. Books have to be inclusive. You mm-hmm. have to include your readers. Mm -hmm. And they have to be accessible. Don't bother Mm -hmm. giving a child or an adult a book if they can't read it. They're not going to read it if they can't do it. So books have to be inclusive. You've got to see yourself and you have to be able to read the book, period. Which is why so many of my books are billed as children's books. And Grace, I have to tell you, I've only written two or three children's books. Generally speaking, I write cultural books and I write books that are inclusive for dyslexic people, people who have learning disabilities, people who are not strong readers, people who might be attention deficit and can't get through more than a two-page story. So Mm -hmm. what I try to do is I try to keep my stories short and impactful, and I try to use techniques, rhythm and rhyme, and it helps people read that little sense of rhythm. Robbie Burns said, a poem without rhythm and rhyme is like playing tennis without a net. So (laughs) I know it sounds old fashioned, and of course, most poets now are free writers and you don't see what you saw years ago and then there's the old the old person like me when I see a painting I like it to look like something as I couldn't do that as opposed to a lot of the more abstract work the same applies to poetry if it sounds like a poem it might be a poem if not it's a prairie thing I think you know yeah. uh, well I guess you know did you watch did you get a chance to watch the uh, inauguration with Amanda Gorman that young oh, yeah. poet, like just I know it, in my class, I love poetry and I've loved poetry since as I was a child because I was exposed to it in elementary school with poetry contests. And I still to this day, absolutely love poetry. I have a whole bunch of books and it's one of my favorite things to teach my students. And poetry, Fine. as like you said, like poetry is one of those things that it can be accessible to everybody and to all children and all different walks of in different abilities and especially fun ones that's just haikus which my students absolutely love no kidding and and so to see that and so that's why i was so happy when you know see that you're a poet because my students just eat it up every time we do a unit in poetry they love it kids do grace it's just such a natural thing it really is which is why i think narrative Books written in narrative, poetic, are always a big draw. And I don't know if you know my book, Voices from the Wild. Mm -hmm. But what I found when I work with students, if I give them, I say to them, what do you want to say? And then lay it out in a poem, lay it out in poetry. So if you want me to know, for example, that an eagle has a great sense of vision, write what you want to say, and then let's turn it into a poem. Look up here, northern poet. I'm the one who soars above you. I'm the ruler of the sky, royal hunter, proudly watching, royal hunter, proudly watching. Use a little repetition. Hear the count. And oh, man, what a wonderful way to to share your passions and your interest and your learnings and your visions. And I know poetry is just it's just the best. If I could, I would write all my books that way. And unfortunately, I can't. And don't ask me why I can't. (laughs) Honest to God, don't ask me why I can't. Sometimes I don't. But more often than not, I do. I expect at least half of the things that I've written, I've written with some sense of rhythm and rhyme. Yeah, I, I really like it. If, mm-hmm. if I were younger, I'd be a rapper. I mean, <laughs> I mean it, I would. It's just with it. The problem is that at my age, if I rap, some kid's going to 911 and say, hurry over here, there's an old man having a seizure. And I'm not unaware of that, so I have to be attentive to I know. <laughs> well, you have, you have the freestyle, right? Which is a great yeah. form of rap and poetry, of which just combines both of them, which is absolutely amazing. And slam poetry. That's, hey, isn't slam, that the truth? Slam poetry is absolutely amazing, too. 
I, you know, in many ways that that applies to dance. And I don't know, Gracie, if you had a chance to see online. There's a competition worldwide that started basically when COVID took place, and it's called Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And if you've not seen it, here's a gift for me to you. When we're done together, go to YouTube, punch in Jerusalem. Okay. Watch what they do, and then take that back to your class and say, "Kids, you want to do this?" And I promise you. I promise you, your kids yeah. will say, yes, I do. And they'll get up. It's You remember when the Macarena came out and there was that kind of, well, it's yeah. got a little bit of that Macarena thing to it, only it's a little bit more spiritual. It's certainly more global. And it started in Africa. And it's so when you go to that YouTube site, you'll see that nurses are doing it. Hospital staffs are doing it. It's classrooms are doing it. Every professional group out there are taking a run at it. You'll see priests and nuns doing this Jerusalem. And it's so, and then when you look at the origin, you'll see the guy that wrote the rap. He's from South Africa. And he talks about how he first got the beat, which is the beginning of all things. The same with poetry, by the way, when you find that beat that you want. Mm -hmm. So he talks about the beat and then he went out and found an artist that was going to, which is what I do. When I write a poem, I find the beat and then I start to throw my text into that beat and I work the lyrics. It's not easy. I work them hard so Mm -hmm. that it says exactly what I want it to say. Every word is well-placed. And then I find an illustrator who represents that beat and that. So when you find Jerusalem up there, you mark my words, before the evening's done, you'll be standing up and you'll be saying (laughs) your husband, Get over here. I will will definitely try that. But I just want to ask you really fast before, like, where do you get these basically ideas for your poetry? Are they, do you get inspired from daily incurrences? Like, I know you live out west in the beautiful BC area. And so do you get inspired by your surroundings? Is it cultural? I know a lot of them have to be cultural, but is it like your circumstances and environment, or is it a combination that you get inspiration for your poems? I really have to work try, uh, trying not to sound painy because I'm anything but a pain. I mean, you're hearing me say that I'm dyslexic. I'm not qualified at so many things that I do. And so when I say this, I say it with the deepest and most sincere truth. And most of my inspiration comes from genetic direction. I kid you not, Grace, I wake up at four in the morning and I, unlike uh, Hemingway, who wrote in an evening, the wee hours, by noon, I'm brain dead, which is brilliant that I can be talking to you in the afternoon. (laughs) I mean, for me, it starts at about three or four in the morning. And if I get an idea, which I do, I get up, period. And I start to write. And I write between four and eight or nine or 10. And then I find myself all sweaty and done. So it comes to me and I kid you not, genetic direction. I woke up at four in the morning. I've written about people that I've never met, places I've never been. And I've just written. And when it's done, I go, okay, well, whoa, I swear to you, it's true. I, mm-hmm. I believe in the depth of my heart that so much of this comes to me from genetic memories. And I don't know if you read Gene Ald, but Gene Ald said that prior to, to Homo sapiens running the earth, there was Neanderthal. And they had uh, communities. They had no vocal cords, but they had communities. And they, the woman was always she who was the medicine person because the memories that they had of which plant cured what ailness was real. And subsequent to that, uh, I believe that our genetic memories are passed down through our grandmothers, period. I'm a big believer in that. And it's funny you say that because I'm in the process of taking an herbalist course and talk yes. about, you know, talk about herbs and doing my research on that. They said, well, you said about the homo sapiens and just following. And they said, because of the hunter and gatherers, and it was a woman who did the gathering and the mm-hmm. women that went to the gathering, they observed the animals and they saw what animals, plants, what they ate and which ones they didn't eat. And they observed that of what they thought was safe because they observed the animals. And because they watch and observe the animals, that's what they knew, which herbs were safe to eat and which plants were safe to eat. Can you imagine this at a a better topic than International Women's Day than to say (laughs) the women had the ability to, well, those men were off chasing some some animal across the plain. Women were saying, well, that grass right there will cure when that loser scratches his knee and gets infected. (laughs) It's It's true. true. And you're saying, you know genetic deposition you know like we're basically genetically prone to this stuff and like well it's like anything else like i believe that there's genetics like people say yeah you have to practice in it but you have to be born with this ability and this you know this art like you look at these musical geniuses and people like oh they must be reincarnation of like you know mozart or whatever i totally believe in that because it's got to come from somewhere the inspiration comes from somewhere it doesn't come from nowhere it's from somewhere and it's funny that you said that because there's so many great readers and musicians who I follow and artists. And they said the same thing. They will get the inspiration in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And that's when they get up. And some of them keep a pad and paper by their table and by their bed, rather. And mm-hmm. they get up and they write because Grace. that's when inspiration hits you. 
I swear to you, half of the things I've written in the last three years, I started on my phone. In some cases, I've edited on my phone, and it abs- it's absolutely true. And you know, it's funny that we, as as a Western society, have not tapped onto that. I remember when Oprah discovered the book The Secret, and it was big to do. I realized I found this book, and if you read The Secret, all you have to do is dream it, and it can happen. And I remember thinking, come on, Oprah, the Houdin and Sony have been saying that for ten thousand years. <laughs> dream it, and it'll happen. You know, this this is some discovery, Oprah. Call yeah. me next time you want some major you know, brain <laughs> fart. Okay, just unbelievable. The other reality, Grace, that you know it has to be said at some point here is that we have a, a lot to learn as Canadians. And, and sometimes I shake my head with an embarrassment that we haven't done a better job at learning from our own mistakes, which is why I think COVID has been such a kick in the head. If that doesn't teach us something, what will? Um, I had a chance to fly up to the only Arctic community in, uh, in the Yukon, I guess, two years ago. It's called Old Crow. The population of Old Crow is 200. 30. And when I landed, it was 47 below and it felt like minus 54. Oh. And, you know, at some point, you're just so cold that you're just cold. And the airport was somewhat like the shack that you see me in now. It was just a small little airport. And some fellow pulled up on his uh, on a snowmobile and he popped off and he took off his mask and he walked over me and he said, are you the author? And I looked around. I mean, I was the only soul for about 14,000 <laughs> miles. I said, what do you think? And he laughed and he said, hey, I'm Danny. I'm Gwichin. I said, Danny, I'm David. I'm Métis. And he said, yeah, the admin asked me to bring you a snowmobile. So it's that green one there and I said okay do I need keys do I need what do I need and he said oh you don't need anything it's broken <laughs> and I said it doesn't work no and I said can I ask how did you get it here he said we've got two trucks in the village I brought it in a truck and I said Danny why the admin asked me to bring something that's all I could find I said if you got a plan B because if you don't I figure I'm gonna be for about four minutes and then I'm gonna die Danny I'm gonna die he said yeah I go get the truck I said go Okay, so we're driving across this little bumpy, not even a road, but it was some sort of a path in in Old Crow. And I said, so is this your home, Danny? Yeah, yeah, all my life. And I said, and married a family? Yeah, divorced. And I said, that's got to be hard. And he said, what do you mean? I said, like in 230 people in your town and you're isolated this way. And where does your wife live? Oh, she lives in a blue house right there. And you? I live in a white one right here. I said, well, Danny, that's what I meant. I'm, you're always in each other's faces. And he said, I don't know, it's not that bad. I said, forget it. Danny, have you ever had another girlfriend? And then he said, yeah, there was a nurse that came in from Toronto. And we really hit it off. And so she went and rented us an apartment in Toronto. And I said, when was that? Two years ago. I said, yeah, but you're still here. I, yeah, I changed my mind. I said, oh, she wasn't the girl for you. And he said, oh, she was awesome. She was just perfect. But Toronto, like, who'd want to live in Toronto? Grace? <laughs> I swear to God, here was this man living 50 below, living in virtual poverty. He had absolutely no teeth because no dental hygiene amongst their people. And here he was saying, who'd want to live in Toronto? It wasn't two months later, I was speaking to the trustees in Mississauga. And I said, by the way, if you think everybody wants to live in Rosedale, if you think everyone in the world wants to drive a Mercedes or that BMW that you're putting aside, if you think everybody in the world wants a four car garage, I know a guy. Who doesn't? His name is Danny. Wow. And I think we've got to get our, our perspectives together. Not everybody wants, you know, and that's part of the problem I think we're facing with kids and some of the issues that they feel. They dream of being an artist or a dancer or, but our, their parents and their schools say to them, if you're going to succeed in life, you look up there, you'll dress like her, you'll look like her, you'll drive a car like that, you'll have a house like that. Mm-hmm. And I say to kids all the time, we're, we're telling you to look the wrong place, sweetie. Look in, inside. Come on, what mm-hmm. gift was creator giving you? Whatever that gift is, you build your life around that. You might get rich, you might not. You might get famous, you might not. But I promise you this, when you're old, you'll look back and say, yeah, I lived my life based on the gift that God gave me, my creator gave me. And funny enough, you know, that's not what we do, is it? It's just not what we do. And it just breaks my heart to say to kids, you don't have to look there. Why are we telling you to look there? Look inside. Every one of you is special. And you have the right to walk in front of a mirror in your house and say, hey, you, I love you. You're not mm-hmm. too skinny. You're not too fat. You're not too tall. You're not too short. You're perfect. You're one of a kind. And I'm so thrilled to be you. But we don't teach you that. And it's so, so wrong. Every mm-hmm. child deserves that. And it's so, so wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That's a little ranting. And there you go. But I'm a storyteller. What do you expect? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, well, that's why, well, like I said, I, I, I myself am going to go back to when I first met you this many years ago at this like literacy symposium. And just listen to you between your poems and your stories and your music, you mentioned three things that really stuck to me to this day. Yeah. And one was, the first one was with time. You said about children need time. Oh, they do. Especially Now, before I actually go delve into this, because you mentioned 
twice now that you're dyslexic. I myself am also dyslexic. Yeah. And I understand, I know the challenges and barriers that I faced as a child growing up. And it was because one teacher that I had, and I was very fortunate, I had amazing teachers growing up that inspired me to become a teacher myself. And they're the ones who show me like, you know, you have this passion for it. You love younger children. You're really good at this. Yeah. At the patients, and so because of them, but so that's I just want to tell you real fast. I share that you know that bond that I myself am dyslexic, and many people are surprised, like, oh, you're dyslexic and you're a teacher. I'm like, yes. Half of the writers I know, Grace, are dyslexic. Half of the writers that I know, it should be a club. Let's be real clear. <laughs> when creator gives you a weakness. Creator also gives you a strength. Mm-hmm. And those of us with any sort of learning disability think outside the box. Yes. And that usually allows for creativity. And most dyslexic kids that I know, and I, t- I tell kids all the time, I say, I'm dyslexic. I am. I am. And all of a sudden we stand up and we take pride in what we have because it means that you've got something else. What have you got? And I always say to kids, you think outside the box, don't you? You're very creative. Yes, I am. Whether it's dance or, in your case, creating this podcast, or it's some way of saying, I want to release something within so, yeah, yeah, dyslexia is a gift. And there's a book called The Gift of Dyslexia that you may have read. And it's worth knowing, yes. you know, half of the world intelligence out there seem to be dyslexic. I know. I, I mentioned this last time in like one of my uh, episodes, I said that, you know, John F. Kennedy was dyslexic. Right. Albert Einstein was dyslexic. Einstein, figure that uh, out. Sir Richard Brenton, most richest, one of the richest guys in the world, dyslexic. And so all these, because it's right, because they think outside of the box. Donald Trump. Uh, it's oh. not dyslexic. No. <laughs> you, you, you <laughs> that, I thought. He's just attention deficit. Now. I, I won't even mention the other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Special okay, snowflakes, well, I call them. <laughs> well, to go back a step that you're right. Unfortunately, reading remains a prerequisite and it shouldn't be because the world is changing so, so, so drastically. I have no idea what it'll be in 20 years, but I will tell you this. As you look around my neck, you'll see these, uh, these we call them in French, the, these, uh, these écouteurs, they're ear pods. And last year, last year I listened to 111 books. I am a fanatic for stories, but so many stories I can't handle. So mm-hmm. what do I do? I listen to them. And I tell kids all the time, I was able to read Harry Potter because it takes place in a world that I can identify with. But Lord of the Rings, that's just not happening for me. Gandalf, Gandorf, and I'm out of it. I yeah. know. So what did I do? I listened to it. And when you can hear a book that's performed by some remarkable talent, I mean, I've listened to books by, and I've got favorite readers all over the place, but oh, who wants to read it yourself when you can, right now I'm reading Peter May and he's got one called the Enzo series. If you've not heard of him, oh, he's just brilliant. But he gets Scott to read his books and to hear a Scotsman read these books of Peter May that take place in Paris with that accent you do is just, oh, I know so. All of a sudden, I find myself, last year, I listened to 111 books. And the fun thing about listening to a book is I could be walking George, I can be working around the house, I can, and I'd be listening to a book, period. Now, where will things be in 10 years from now? Will there be any written books? Will, will reading be a prerequisite? Or will you say, hey, I want to learn something about Canadian history. We will step into a room, and all of a sudden, you'll become a character in a dramatic scene. I have no idea, but if you would have told me 40 years ago, and you know that technology is doubling, tripling every 10 years, that I would be listening to some of the classics that I've heard. I've just listened to classics. Wow. Mm-hmm. I I'm a huge fan of... Podcasts and audiobooks myself too, because I, you know, I, myself when I'm working out or cleaning, I love to listen. I'm actually listening right now to the history of white people, which is actually a very interesting one, especially because talking about white fragility is actually very powerful. And I, I recommend all my white friends to listen and read this book because it is truly makes you step back and realize where the white privilege comes from. It's just, anyhow, that's another whole other story. But Of course, yeah, there's a whole series on white privilege that are out there. <sighs> Michelle Obama's book was just to die oh, for. And, becoming, and, yes. And again, to hear Becoming Red by by Michelle herself. Yeah. Tell me you wouldn't want to do that. Who oh, I love it. Isn't it true? I, I love oh. that book. That was one of my favorite audiobooks I had. And International Women's Day. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but that's funny to say because, like, and like I said, and that's what I loved about your your keynote when you talked about this about specifically reading itself well and it's yes. true and it, because yourself you have struggled with dyslexia yourself yeah. your whole life and yeah, you yeah. in the education system as a teacher as a principal you probably saw all the hinders and all the barriers that kids do struggle with but not just the sex of kids but kids of all 
different learning abilities and disabilities, right? And so that's what that struck a chord when he said that children need time. Do you want to maybe elaborate about that? Well, I will, but before we do that, Grace, for for your listeners to know, and I guess even to repeat for you, you know, I've got, I've got carpenters and tradesmen work here on the house right now. Just just, (laughs) my whole house is a mess. But (laughs) what would you prefer for a carpenter? Would you prefer the guy that's working now, that the handsome Hungarian who's 63 years old and he's been a carpenter since he was 20 and he's done everything. If you need a problem with plumbing, he's there. Electricity, he's there. He climbed up on my roof and he patched all everything. And he's a master carpenter. So he's built the fireplace. So do you want a 63 year old who's lived it or do you want a 22 year old who's taken a course in plumbing or in what some other trades or in carpentry and the answer for me is tell me about somebody who's learned 24 7 from life from living yeah. uh, I, the perspective that i come at you with is one of, of having lived it period i have two sons who are non-readers because of me i have a daughter who's now considering becoming a librarian because of me from my life experiences i've seen it i've watched it happen repeatedly and i've been to conferences where i've listened to experts talk about a new course that's going to teach a child how to read and how to become millionaires and teach a child how to cure their parents' marriage and how to teach a child. And at some point you shake your head and say, come on, come on, let's get right down to the basics. So I always refer to Maria Montessori, kind of another hero on International Women's Day. Maria Montessori said, it's simple, friends. Come on, let's be real clear. Kids need time to walk. They need time to talk and they need Mm -hmm. time to read. They'll read when they're ready, not when you tell them to read, which is why I say, Ontario, what's with this this thing about testing them earlier and earlier? Cut them some slack. There's no reason for this. this is not a race. Cut them some slack because you know what you do when you label a child, you create that child. They will live up to your every expectation of them. So go ahead, tell a little boy that he's a reluctant reader and I promise you, you have a reluctant reader. On the other hand, tell him that he's an awesome reader. And I promise you, you've got an awesome reader. He just needs a little bit more time. It's just a phenomenon I'll never understand. Never understand. Mm-hmm. There is no hurry. So when my little girl started school, she went with a letter from me saying, you will not test my little girl in any form until you get a go from me. And she didn't write a standardized test until she was in grade six. And by then she was labeled the reading girl. She did not write a standardized test until she was grade six, and everybody knew her as the reader. And all my little girl needed was more time. She was a slow walker, a slow talker, and I knew she'd be a slow reader, and she became a voracious reader. 93% average in grade 12 English. Why? Because she's a reader, period. I know. There's no magic. They need time. How much? Every child is different, but I will tell you this. We are not giving them enough time. We are too stuck on doing it earlier, earlier. And where is it coming from? It's coming from experts, people who say, no, no, you can start earlier. Come on, let's get ahead here. Let's nail them as four-year-olds. And I got some news for you. You can nail them as a six-month-old. If they're not ready to walk, they will not walk. If they're not ready to talk, they will not talk. And if they're not ready to read, they will not read. They'll read if and when they're ready. And that's what I like about the Scandinavian countries, how they tend to be more chill than we are. You know, they let the fruit ripen before they pluck it from the tree and stuff it full of steroids. And we, we've got some learning to do, but I think parents who know that, parents don't let them do that to your child. If your child is a slow walker, slow talker, as mine was, chances are more than likely they're going to be a slow reader. They just need time. Don't mm-hmm. let them be labeled. Don't let them be taken out of class for remedial reading. If in fact, all they need is time. Because the minute you take them out of class, they think, oh, I'm not a good reader. And if you're not a good reader, you're not going to want to read. Just leave them alone. And as parents, you owe it to them to be their protector. Put an umbrella over them. And again, I wouldn't be real clear on this. I might be wrong, but I don't think I am. Certainly wasn't for my daughter. And when I was a principal for years, that was my philosophy. And when I retired, I got a beautiful plaque from our parents saying, thank you for allowing our kids to learn to read for love. Mm-hmm. So that, that was the first issue. Okay, so of course, the second thing it took was a hero. You got to have a hero. Yes. You're not going to read if you don't have a hero, period. And my sons didn't have me because I didn't have my dad and I didn't know it was my job. I thought some teacher or some school or some principal was going to do it. It's not there. Kids need a hero. And I say to teachers all the time, come on, if I'm from a single parent home, whether I'm a single dad or a single mom, and I've got to go home and I've got two kids that I've got to get lunch ready for, and I've got to make supper, and then I've got to do laundry, and I've got to, I'm burnt by the end of the day, and I might not be able to put on that hero hat. So I say, teachers, forget everything. I forget the curriculum and put on that hero hat. Let those kids see you read. Let them see you be passionate about reading. And you make sure you give them that gift because Mm -hmm. you are second in line. You teachers are second in line to their mom and dad. And if they drop the ball because they can't carry the ball, it's for you. And the same applies to the rest of the staff. I don't care if you're custodial staff or you're a TA or you are on the line. So you pick up that ball. I said every child needs a hero, period. Mm-hmm. How am I doing, Grace? I, I just, that's amazing. Okay. You're just like basic. No, it, I'm just like taking it back because it just it's bringing me back to the symposium. Like I said, I literally sat there and I'm like, 
this to me, this did like, when I heard the symposium, it spoke volumes for me because I, it resonated with me because as an individual who struggled with reading, yeah. and I was very fortunate to have great teachers. And then we're also very fortunate where I teach at my school, mm. where we have this amazing reading program where the teachers mm. are just so nurturing and they organically give the kids and like the kids the opportunity with other kids and they're all like supporting each other. So these kids are organically naturally finding these like, oh, I can do this. But those kids who are not there just quite yet, I say, got to give it time. And that's what I tell parents a lot of the times during interviews, you know, when I sat down, the parents are worried, like, they can't read, like, we got to give them time. We oh, got to give them time. Right. And, I, yeah. and I tell the parents, I'm like, you can't rush them to go get their license. They're only six years old. Time and I'm like, we gotta go at their pace. We gotta go at their pace. And when they're ready, you're gonna see that they're gonna pick a book. And like I said, I had parents who come up to me later on and said, "You're right." And like it just one day they just a light came on and they knew how to write and read. (laughs) I said, "We're not gonna not push them, and we're gonna gently guide them along the way. We're not gonna let them to get lazy, but we're gonna do is like, okay." Here's some tools. Here's some strategies that's going to help you to when you're ready. And when you're ready, these tools and strategies that I've taught you are going to make sense. And then one day, they're like, oh, yeah, that. I remember that. Yeah, Grace, what I probably didn't speak on then, which I always say to older kids and I, you know, for your listeners to know, do you know what it takes to create a reader? It takes one book. It just takes one book. If you can get a child hooked on one book, you've got them, period. And it's our job as parents and teachers to keep looking for that one book. And when you find it, Go get another one. Just like it. Just like it. Just like it. You can get them from your library. You can get them from various sources. Now you can find them online. There's so many places. But find that magic that catches them because there's something that interests everybody. And if you can't find a book that interests them, you lose. But there Mm -hmm. is something there. Of course, now there's graphic novels that deal with everything from superheroes to, oh, this is just a plethora of wonderful mm-hmm. stuff. That one book is what it takes. It takes one book. And it's our job to help them find that book. And it's their job to take that book and soak it in. So that's just as an aside. But yeah, time uh, and then a hero. Oh, by the way, I should tell your readers again, if anybody's at all interested, check it out. It's called Reading with Dad by Richard oh. Jorgensen. Reading with uh, Dad by, with Richard Dad. Yor- yeah, by Richard Jorgensen. And it sounds like this. We're there in the photo that hangs on the wall. This is the first childhood memory that I can recall. There's three of us stuffed in an overstuffed chair. Well, two. It just felt like the third one was there. The cat in the hat, my father and I. It's just before bed. I'm warm and I'm dry. He's turning to laugh as he's reading a book. We're having such fun as we were. The book is absolutely magical. And it talks about how this little girl says, uh, you know, I was reading with dad. My best part of my whole life was reading with my dad. And then, of course, on the very last page, now he's lying in his bed. I fluff up the pillow beneath his gray head. And although I, I, he's tired, I, I'm ready to rest. He asked me to read to him from the books I love best. So once again, we fall under the spell as we travel that story road we both know so well. This story short, though. He's weary, I can see. So we quietly finish with Psalm 23. And softly he says, as I turn off his light, baby, wasn't there always a book for you and me before we said goodnight? This picture will show you the best times I've had in every one of them as I was reading with this man right here. Can you see him? This is my dad. Oh. Richard Jorgensen. Oh, my story. gosh. So beautiful. I know. I know. And that's going to be me. When I'm on my deathbed, Victoria's going to say, Papa, I remember you reading to me when I was a little girl. I uh, see. Oh. I know. So that's the th- second thing. And then, of course, the third thing it takes grace is books. No books, no reading. And that's that's problematic. Mm-hmm. It's problematic because of this. Books have to be the right kind of books. And it kills me when people say, listen, we've got a thousand books. So we're sending to some isolated reserve up north. And I said, they don't want your books. They don't want your old books that do not reflect who they are. Mm-hmm. Books have to include the readers, which is why it's been so difficult for Indigenous readers to read. Because you don't see yourself in a book. There is not one elder on a reserve in Canada that that's got his name on the waiting list for Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Why? Because we have our own little people, but I can assure you they're not hobbits. <laughs> I know. We have to see ourselves in books. And for the first time in the last in history, in the last 20 years, you're finding books out there that are written by and for and illustrated by Indigenous authors. And all of a sudden, children can look and say, hey, that powwow, I, I do. I, I do the chicken. And it goes like this. And, and all of a sudden, we can see ourselves in books. And that is key. Books have to include readers. Now, here's the real problem for you as a teacher. What happens if you have a child who's from the Philippines? Go in your library and tell me that you've got any sort of a collection of Philippine books, something that that child can look at and say, that reminds me of my home in Vietnam. 
it's hard, which is why we as educators and parents have to say, to include my child, I might, if I'm a teacher, I go to the principal and say, hey, I need some money because I'm going to Abe Books, for example. I'm going and I'm going to buy on Amazon some books that will include my Filipino readers. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden you've got them in your classroom. They will start to read them and talk to you about their lives and who they are and who they want to be. Mm-hmm. Books have to be inclusive. Let's be real clear. They need books. No books, no reading. And they have to include us, which is why send me five books to a Northern Reserve that speak to who those kids are instead of a thousand that have nothing to do with who they are because they're not going to read them anyway. We'll use them for firewood, period. Mm -hmm. And the second thing, they have to be able to read them. If they can't read them, they won't, which is why we have to work as as a society to find books that are readable to those kids. And I write books for people like that who need a little incentive. I use visuals. I use poetry. I use whatever means possible to include my readers. And we have to collectively come to know what our readers are capable of, and then find something that they can read that they see themselves in. Mm-hmm. So Maria Montessori said, there's, there's no magic to this. They need time, they need a hero, and they need books, but the right kind, inclusive and accessible books. Mm-hmm. No real magic. It's just a matter of doing it right. And there are people that say, no way, man, that's not true. I can teach any child to read at four years old if you use this program. And I'll say to you, go ahead, teach them to read. But if you don't give them the heart, if you don't give them passion for reading, you've wasted your time because they won't read. Yeah. I want fire. I want fire. When I'm a teacher, I don't want to give kids knowledge. I want to give them fire. I want to inspire. Mm-hmm. That's what I like we that. teachers do. We inspire. We don't like, we don't fill buckets. We we light flames is what we do, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. you know, you give, give me the tools. I mean, enemy. I want the fire. I want a child to walk away and say, "Where is that book? I want to read that book. Where can I find that?" And then to sit down and just close my, go away. You know that mm-hmm. thing. I want to read. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. And well, you can add with many of your books. You have seventy books that you've written yourself that you could add to that to that collection to like you know kids to read, which is great. And especially, I think as can you know being Canadian, it's great to see now more and more books about. First Nations and Métis and Inuit books yeah. and it's great to see this books because I explained to my students like you said being in Toronto being a very multicultural and being a very you know transit neighborhood we have kids from Ethiopia we have kids from you know Nigeria Whoa. Philippines you name it we have all these kids it is great but I said you know there's an outside of Toronto there's more than just outside of Toronto I said can and we do the land acknowledgments every day with my students and we do it and so our students understand that. I said, but Canada is made up more than just you and I. It's made up by this like different heritages before we came here. And so I explained to my students. And so for me as a teacher, I think it is so important that we teach that part of our Canadian history. I'm like, yes, we are Canadian, but we need to know our history. And our history starts with the First Nations, with the Métis and the Inuit people. This is where it comes from. This is like where we can be thankful. Like, And so for my students, I've been trying to bring in those books. And for them to see that, they're like, oh, wow. You mean there's people who don't look like us who live in other parts of Canada? I'm like, yes. It's you know true. I mean? it's, oh, it's, absolutely. These kids will never know and they'll never see it if I did not have these books for them. And of course, that that in itself provides new challenges for us as a nation. It's true that we can now look back and say, well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see the number of Indigenous people in Ontario. Just You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see the Francophone presence in Northern Ontario. Just drive up to Timmins there. But you do have to have some sort of a vision for the future of your country when you look at the streets of Toronto. I absolutely love walking downtown Toronto and I'm looking at the colors of people on the streets, the colors yeah. of the people I meet. And I say, are we living up to what we should be or are we providing for their kids? Are we providing for these people, these Canadians? Mm-hmm. And if we are, when we walk into a school and we see a school that boasts 40 flags, that I'm seeing it. These are the people in our school that represent these countries. I want to go into the library and I want to see sections of each of those 40 flags. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I don't think that the opportunities are going to be equitable. I think that mm-hmm. if you are a person with a Nigerian background, you deserve to have access with books that reflect your African base. And mm-hmm. there are some wonderful writers out there. Tolodo Morel, when he wrote Kito to the Mighty, 
I tried to read it so I sound like him, but I sound like I'm a cross between, I don't know, a Ukrainian and a Pole. I just, my accent is so bad. But I heard him read it, and I swear to God, Grace, I work always. I want to sound like Tulolwo Molel. And then we look at the raptors and we learn that we, I want to make sure that we're representing them in our libraries. And I'm hoping that school districts and parents and teachers are saying, Let's look at our libraries and are they represented in our libraries? Because they're going to read if they mm-hmm. have time, if they have a hero, and if they have books that yes. that speak to them, that they can see themselves in. And I'm a little concerned that we are falling behind the eight ball because we think, oh, here's how kids learn to read. No, 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 no. Do you have the right kind of books for those kids? And if you don't, go find them. They're there. And yeah. if they're not there, go ahead and get somebody in your community to start to write them. But I think they're there. I think they're, they're there. I agree. And it's great, you know, like you're saying, the heroes, because... You know, I don't know how long now it's been going on, but you, when you see athletes reading books and kids can yes. watch these athletes read books, yeah. so they look up to these athletes like, oh, they're reading. This is great. That hero thing as well. You bet it is. So I they love that see too. Heroes reading. The kicker for me always is finding the right product, and it's going to be challenging. I mean, there are some wonderful, wonderful African-based writers, Canadians of African roots. But don't kid yourself. There's tons of stuff there in Africa that we want to be bringing over here. Some beautiful, beautiful picture books for the young ones and some novels for the older ones. The same apply to the Philippines, to Cambodia, to we want to be doing that, making sure that we are heavily immersed in that. I'm hoping the school boards have got somebody whose focus is nothing more than making sure that our libraries include that. So I hope somebody's out there doing some research and saying, hey, these are authors that we would recommend for this age reader. Somebody's got to do that homework. I mean, you can't, You don't have time to do that as a teacher. You've got your hands full. And I, if anybody from the school board is listening to me, make sure you find that person. It's your job. I agree. And it's funny you say that because I look at my, because I have an addiction to children's book and my husband laughs because I just buy so many children's books all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I have a section in my class where I have like organized and I have you know I have my Canadian ones right so like I have a lot of First Nations and Métis like books in there which are great then I have because I'm really big into meditation myself and so I have mindfulness books Mm -hmm. but when it comes to that's one fault I don't have is that I need to bring in more culturally you know representative books for my students to like to represent them into Mm. the classroom and that's I think the trick is is that it's having the access to these because it's hard to find them, especially age appropriate ones right for grade one i don't want them to read like a graphic novel that's inappropriate for them at a young age no but it'd be great to have for kids to read books that are for them at their age and it's i know like you said i know they're out there and i'll say it again race you're a mom you're a teacher you're a wife tell me that you get time to come home at report card season and look for the right books look for new and exciting books and it's really really hard so yeah there's got to be somebody that gives you that directive yeah you know although thank god for google you know for amazon <laughs> i know yeah i know and of course in toronto because you have so many good bookstores and so much multicultural presence mm-hmm. you're in a pretty good place yeah and our country is a lot better because of those people who have come to Canada, whether it's this generation, the next or the next. And I just love, I just love to see that presence. When I watch the Raptors and I watch Pascal Siakam out there, or I watch when Serge Ibaka was on our team. And for those who don't know Serge Ibaka, Serge is Yifakofan Kamwa. He's a French-speaking person of African roots. He's six foot eleven. He's built like a Greek god. And every time he appears on the screen of our television, my wife pokes me and says, why don't you look like him? My husband's. I say the same thing because I have my friends all know I had the biggest crush on him, and my friends are like, "Shh, no, no, he's on, he's on." Like, don't talk to me, leave me alone. Like, he's on right yeah, now, yeah. and it, he is like, he's just this beautiful man. Yes, and, just, and it broke your heart when he was traded. It did mine uh, too. I, I know we uh, men don't want to say it because we don't want to appear weak. But we yeah. feel the same way. Oh yeah, it was hard. So I want to ask really. Going back to your personal experience growing yeah. up with dyslexic, and did you have a hero that were you were able to look at that helped you kind of like lead you and guide you to where you became and where you are today? No, plain and simply no, Grace. My dad was my hero in every way. He coached me in every sport. He sold a farm in 1954 and became a barber so that I could eventually go to university and become a teacher and an administrator. And he didn't know it was his job, so he coached me. So he was my hero, but certainly not a reading hero. I had no reading hero. And the teachers in my life could have and should have, but they didn't seem to know. I can name about 10 of them who could have say, hey, David, what are you reading? And I would have said, I, I, 
I'm not a good reader. And if they would have said, hey, try this, I would have read it and I'd have fallen in love with that book because I thought the world of that person, Monsieur Leost, he could slam dunk a basketball. He had a slap shot better than Bobby Russo's. And for him, I would have either rolled across burning coals naked. But he didn't ask me. Nobody kind of led me there. So I got through school being a non-reader, university, being a non-reader, a master's degree without having read a book from cover to cover for pleasure. I could read, but it was hard. And I did read so that I could so I could work out some measure of response to my exams. And I, I succeeded very, very well by academic standards. And yet mm-hmm. I didn't understand. There was no depth of comprehension at all, period. Mm-hmm. And at no one time in those years did I ever, ever read for pleasure. I think I read my first book for pleasure as a teacher, as a 27-year-old, when I had to, I was a vice principal, and I had to cover a grade four teacher's class, and I had no idea what to do. So I grabbed Betsy, the librarian, I said, Betsy, help, what do I do? And she handed me Barbara Park's Skinny Bones, and I started to read Skinny Bones aloud to my grade fours. And I, I kid you not, the bell rang, and I said, all right, out we go. And they just sat there looking, and they said, finish it. Wow. I, I said, are you serious? Come on, Mr. Finish it. Come on, finish it. Finish it. There's just a few minutes left. And I realized that it had captured them as much as it had me. I said, okay. Next week, I came back with the sequel, which was called Almost Starring Skinny Bones. And I had read two books for pleasure. I read them for no other reason than I really enjoyed reading them. And I was forced to read them because I had to cover this class the first time. But then after that, it was just, phew, forget that. I then collected my favorite books. And I would go from classroom to classroom. And I would say to teachers, come on, you take a coffee. And let me read. So Roald Dahl was always one of my favorites because Roald Dahl was, like, let's face it, he's pretty goofy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, boys like farts and peeing and things like that. <laughs> I know Mr. Twit, Mr. Twit, who sends his wife up to heaven on a chair. And so, and we can do that in poetic form or, you know, so all of a sudden I had this box and I called it my box of treasures and I would go around and kids would see me, come on in, come on in. And I would go and I'd, I'd read them some of my favorite stories and they're still my favorite. You know, I could name off a dozen books that I think every teacher should have. Some that you do have, Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. Who yeah. doesn't love that? Or I think everything by, oh, look at there, look at you. There's Shel's how you yeah. show off you. Grace, brown bear, brown bear. Mm. I mean, for me, knots on a counting rope that's been, I think the Toronto School Board has pulled it out of your libraries. And I swear to God, I, I just thought it was wonderful. Don't forget, I was speaking in Durham when they were talking about banning Harry Potter. And I spoke to the trustees and I stood there and I had been invited in as a guest speaker. And I said, I understand that you were talking about banning Harry Potter. What in the world are you thinking? Mm-hmm. And I could see the person who invited me and shaking her head saying, no, David, don't do it. Don't, David, don't, David, don't do it. Like, come on. Yeah. So, yeah, very favorite books. We all have those and everybody has different favorites. So you've got to find something that really, really appeals to you. And then you share that. And that's how you that's how you catch kids, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. going to be your. Yeah. In French, we call them my little special place in my heart. It's mine. It's mine. Funny you say that I have a book. Hold on. I'm going to find it for you really fast. Hold on. OK. This is my favorite book as a kid. What you're doing, I do all the time. I'm always jumping up and down. It was one of my first books that I loved as a kid, and my mom got it for me, and it was Barbie. <laughs> this Barbie, like, it was one of those level readers, and I have pictures in it. I drew pictures in it, and I still have that book. Right. After, like, what, 30-something years, my mom found it. She's like, oh, my gosh, I found this book. And so I have right. a collection of books that were, but, yeah, it's like, Isn't I refuse to get rid of this book. I'm like, I agree. It's even got your stink on it from when you were yeah. a little kid, doesn't it? <laughs> I always exactly. lick that book and put your stink on it. Yeah, oh, and I, know. I, I don't know why. And like, but like, even like as a kid with dyslexic, you know, having a hard time reading, my mom would practice with me with that book because that book was like, because it was repeti- you know, I guess repetition. It just helped me, you know, recognize the words and the letters and so the letter sounds. And so it just stuck to me. And that's my favorite book. And of course, back then we didn't have the kind of quality that we have today. I and mean, let's be honest with you, with each other. We have some incredible books today. Yeah. And anybody who's about to badmouth Robert Munch, don't do it in front of me. I mean, he's gotten, he's a little bit like J.K. Rowling. He's got so many kids hooked and so many kids reading and parents reading. For, I love you forever. Parents falling in love with the book. So anybody who can yeah. do that is uh, right up there amongst the heroes of literacy. Yeah. And, and then you say, okay, what are your 10 favorite books? That type of thing. And for your listeners, If anybody's not read Bird Baylor, go ahead, pick it up called Guess Who My Favorite Person Is. Read that to your students, teachers. Guess Who My Favorite Person Is by Bird Baylor. Try that and I promise you, you'll want more of her books, period. And then where do you go from there? Well, you know, you've already heard me mention two or three must reads and these are easy. The one for parents, of course, reading with dad. 
Oh, man. How about reading with Bear? Do you know the one where, where you go and he finds that bear in the forest and the bear takes his books? It's relatively yeah. new. Oh, Okay, Grace, I'm off on a tangent and I shouldn't be. I'm a, I'm a storyteller. <laughs> it's okay. No, it's okay. It's okay. So I, I just like, I can talk forever and about it. I don't want to keep it too long, but I just, if you can give any tips for teachers yeah. and teachers have been teaching, you know, like the veteran teachers mm-hmm. and the new teachers, what tips could you give mm-hmm. to teachers? That relate to reading or in a general way? I guess relate to reading because especially now with COVID and we're starting to see the unfortunately some kids I think a lot of teachers are just worried where kids are going to be academically because uh-huh. they miss so much and we notice that and we're noticing like, collectively teachers are noticing the gap with teachers I know you said one is time so but what is a tip I guess and just in general for teachers yeah, yeah and, you know, and, there's one for reading and then there's one in a more general way okay. for reading. I would say, teachers, let's make sure we keep it fun. You know, I, I, if I have any concern with what COVID is doing is that it's going to put some pressure on parents. Uh, I'm hearing it so much from the states that we're falling behind and there is no falling behind. This isn't a race, parents. This is, you're not falling behind anything. You know, just It's just another step in the journey. So make sure that you keep it fun. Mm-hmm. Remember that even if a child can read and they don't read, they have no advantage over a child who cannot read. So you make sure you give them that pleasure and make sure that they have fun doing it it's got to be something you love so surround yourself with books that you love and then and then just turn them on to those that when it comes to literacy and on the other hand teachers if i can just once more remind you that we as an educational system believe that we want kids to succeed to be doctors and lawyers and teachers and the way our parents did so we want them to have those measures of success and i want to remind all of you it's time that we stop having them look up in the clouds have them look within every child's got something special and when they come in boy oh boy make sure you say to them come on what gift has creator given you and they know they're not stupid they know ask them start the day by saying how many of you are good with animals and you'll see some arms go up. How many of you are good with mathematics? You'll see some arms go up. Who's athletic? There will be arms. Who's good with technology? Not like playing games. Everybody likes to play games, but if something goes wrong at home, mom and dad say, come and help me with this. Because you've got a natural way with technology. You know who you are. You know who you are. Let's go there. Let's try and focus some of our teaching, some of our reading around who you are. Okay, that's it. You're good with animals? You go out and find me that animal book. Let's get mm-hmm. see if we can find stuff that relate to your, you're an athlete? Come on, let's go find a book about, I don't know, Mr. Gretzky or something interesting that, mm-hmm. you know. So I, to teachers, I would say in combining those two things, make sure, please, that you you recognize that every child has something special. And if we can focus on their strengths and not their weaknesses, you know, rather than say, oh, let's let, you know, you're dyslexic. Let's go get that dyslexia. How about instead of go get it, why don't we focus on what you can build on? I mean, see, you've got a weakness. Okay, what is your strength? Let's go there. Mm-hmm. I sound like a preacher, don't I, Grace? <laughs> no, you don't. It's, just, I, it's funny you say because I my students laugh because I always tell them mistakes to me. Like I was like, if you're not making mistakes, that means you're not learning. Mistakes oh, means that you're learning, mm-hmm. and I always mm-hmm. tell them that. And and a lot of them like I tell them, okay, you may not know how to write like or spell but you know how to write i said so just write just write have fun i'm not looking for spelling i'm looking for you guys for your thinking for having fun we're doing this right so every friday we do journals mm-hmm. and i love that i do free topic fridays mm-hmm. they can write about anything they want well there's another one of those tea things when I, kids say to me what's the hardest part the hardest part is when somebody tells me to write something and i don't have something i want to say yeah you know, yeah. really, sometimes I might not have anything I want to say. There's yeah. nothing really exciting in my life. Then I don't know. I want to write when I've got something really cool. Louis Riel died and we put our name on a list for a border terrier and we got George. And I've got so much I want to say about George. Give me a paper and a pencil and I can write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you've got to have something you want to say, don't you? No, 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 no. I was going to say no. It's true, though, because like and so I've just said like I and just giving the kids like they'll I guess create a freedom that way. And of course. Kids just, it's funny. And they just love it. They get excited. Right. Like it's Friday. Like free topic Friday. They get so excited and they just write about, I went to the park. Awesome. You went to the yeah, park. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, steps in dog poo. Right I, on. Exactly. But I said to them, like, I don't care what you write. I just want you to express yourself. I just want you to like have fun in doing this, right? Just get comfortable writing this and draw mm-hmm. pictures. And they love to draw the pictures that go with it. And so it's funny. Even my, my struggling re- like writers, they just, they love it. And they, they, sometimes my struggle writers Don't are the they, ones who write the longest. Isn't it true? I know. And of course, that that's that real in many ways, Grace. That's uh, one of the uh, gifts of a real good teacher. It's starting them on a story that some child wants to kick in and say, "Hey, no, yeah, hey, hey, 
you know? And mm-hmm. when I said the dog poo thing, I mean very, very sincerely. If you were starting an afternoon by saying to kids, I walking under the parking lot, I stepped on dog poo and I carried it right into the staff room. I promise you, you'll have 10 arms go up and they'll all have a poo story. And you know what I'm saying? And those of us that have got that teaching ability, we want to say, oh, yeah, take them on that journey. Get them started on stories. You know, sometimes, you know, somebody will tell a joke and say, I'm going better than that. And you kind of outdo people with jokes. Yeah. Cool. Oh, we actually had that today with my class. We had jokes and we were telling jokes to each other. It was and with one of my colleagues across the hall, we were telling these like really funny dad jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Good. So the students heard it, so they were given their best dad jokes. But oh yeah, but no, I agree. Like yeah, whether it's happy, whether it's happy or sad, or yeah, you bet. You know, if I if I come in and I say my dog died and I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep and I had to take him there to the vet's office and they gave him a needle and I watched him close his eyes and then I look down and I look up, I'll have ten, fifteen arms up. My my cat was run over. And my dad picked, and all of a sudden, you know, because they're they're a real part of life, and we do want to share our experiences and our our successes and our hurts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, I guess, we just got to, like you said, time and just have this ex- an open and safe place for them to express themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Life, life is a story. Yeah, that's really profound. Life is a story. Mm-hmm. Well, Dave, before we end, I always do with my guests is two stars and a wish, and the two stars are like. You know, about presentations, like usually my students, when they're given something, you know, mm-hmm. students get two stars they really liked about the presentation and, and a wish for next time. Do you have any two stars and a wish that you would like for yourself, like maybe when you're a principal or your teacher, even right now in your stage in your life, do you have any two stars or wish? And I'm limited to three hours to express those. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Absolutely true. One of the best things that I did, and I would give myself a star for that, was that every day, every day I would sit down and I would compose a letter to a student, a staff member, or a parent telling them of something I thought was wonderful about them. And I would have my secretary record where that went. And whenever there was a response, she would record who responded. So every day during the school year, a letter would go out, a formal letter from the principal to a member. So, And I can't tell how often I would have teachers say, I've been in the classroom for 25 years and never once has somebody said something like that about me. So that was for sure a star. It was one of the the more brilliant things that I did. And of course, the other thing that I did is uh, it was the gift of reading. It it dawned on me that we had to be heroes. And so I made sure that our teachers were on board. Uh, If you didn't agree with our way of thinking, then chances are you didn't want to be at our school. So we shut the, the school down every day for obviously for silent reading. And the teachers knew it had nothing to do with the kids reading. It had to do with the kids looking at their teachers wanting to be like their heroes. And they read and we read together and we shared ideas about reading. And so the focus we had on reading in our school was was it was a star. If I had a wish, I wish I would have done it earlier. If I had a wish, I wish that I would have known as an earlier as a teacher, the kind of power I had over kids. I knew I was so many kids hero. I had long hair and I was I was athletic and I played the guitar. And I knew there were a lot of kids that would have that looked up to me and I just dropped the ball. I should have, I could have led them to become better readers. So that when I was signing a book and uh, signing books in Regina at the book and Briar patch, I looked up and there was a young Asian woman off on the side, young. She was in her mid-40s. There was this old lady standing on the side looking at me. And it was one of those looks that teachers hate that say, you were my teacher. Do you remember me? You know, we all get that look. Oh, I looked and I looked out and I said, okay, uh, I taught you. I know I did. So give me a second. And I kept signing books and I looked up and I said, Belinda Ma, I taught you in grade eight and nine at Wetmore School in 1973. And she threw herself in my arms and she said, Miss Bouchard, I, I always knew I was your favorite. What do you say to that? Uh, I didn't dare tell her that she was the only Chinese girl in Saskatchewan. I didn't say that. I said, you were, Belinda, you were. And then she told me that they had had a a school function, a, a reunion, and they talked about the time that I drove to Weyburn to watch Murray play hockey and how 40 years later, 40 years later, they were still talking about the time I drove to Weyburn in a storm to watch one of the boys play hockey. And that was the power I had. And I said, Belinda, Belinda, that's really nice, but I wish, I wish you'd say, Ms. Bouchard, do you want to know what I am because of you? I'm a voracious reader. Do you remember the time that the boys grabbed your mini in the parking lot and they started rocking it over the lunch hour and you were reading a book and you banged your head on the window? And I'd say, no, that's the point. You don't even remember it. You were so into your book. You do remember the time you're walking down the hallway, you're reading that book and you walked into an open door and broke your glasses. I said, yeah, I do remember that. I was so enamored by you were my hero. And today I'm a voracious reader because of you. 
I wish this, I would have known the power I had. That's my one wish. Yeah. Oh, wow. Matt, I can go on, David. Like you're, you're such an inspiration and you give me inspiration to like, remember why I got into teaching and to remember like, you know, I was in those kids shoes once upon a time and remember to go back to those roots and I have to remind myself, these are the three things I think that every teacher should, a philosophy, hence that's why my podcast is called Teacher's Philosophy, because this is something that we should be living by, and we should be in our ethics as teachers, in our work ethics as teachers. So I just want to say thank you so much. And before we go, could you place out with your flute, one of your... Oh, absolutely. For the francophones amongst you, I usually don't play songs that I know. Usually I play things that are from my heart, but we play songs like this. que je t'aime jamais je ne t'oublierai voilà oh merci you're, you're <laughs> thank you Grace. so much David you've been a pleasure good luck thank in your podcast good luck thank in your teaching and I don't think you need uh, much motivation in what you do you're a pack of energy and <laughs> it's what we all want for a teacher thanks Grace Perfect. thank you so much David take you're care so and <laughs> thanks guys for listening again come back in two weeks where we will have another guest coming on and you guys can get more tips and like i said if you want to find out more about david please check on the bio here i will have on the podcast linked up on apple and google play and all the show notes you will find all the information you need so until then take care guys and we will see you soon bye